behavior contingent gifts, all the research says are demotivating. And let me explain what that is. So let's say you have a person who's, as we say, intrinsically motivated to do a certain behavior. So they think that raising money for the American Cancer Society is the right thing to do. They're intrinsically motivated. Then you say, well, if you raise a thousand dollars, we're going to give you this jacket. Okay. That's what I mean by a behavior contingent gift. If you raise a thousand dollars, give you a jacket. All the research says that if you give an intrinsically motivated person a behavior contingent gift, it's demotivating. Welcome to the Responsive Nonprofit Podcast, brought to you by Virtuous. Responsive nonprofits are the organizations leading with innovation to grow giving and impact. Join us each week in spirited conversation with the leading voices across philanthropy, fundraising, and nonprofit technology. Subscribe on your favorite stations or visit us at virtuous.org backslash podcast. All right. Well, we are back for another episode and I am Personally, really, really, really excited about this one. The more I study, the more excited I got because I think we're going to get a real gift here for our listeners because of the two folks that we have on this podcast. They've got you know over three decades experience of serving some of the largest nonprofits in in our nation, and I mean these are big names that we're going to talk about. But not only serving and consulting for these organizations, but then really getting to the psychology and the why behind fundraising. And for me personally, I'm really interested in the role of volunteers and how do we convert volunteers into donors and just the behaviors behind that that can really drive our nonprofits forward as we're, you know, we're all on this journey to go do more good and make more impact. And so today on the show, we've got Katrina Van Hus and Otis Fulton. They come to us from Turnkey. And we're going to dive into what Turnkey is. And they've also got a new book that really is going to help frame our conversation today called Social Fundraising, Mining the New Peer-to-Peer Landscape. And this is their second book together. So there's just going to be a lot of material here. And what's even more fun is they're married. And so we're going to get the real truth of this stuff. You know, if it's anything like my wife, you know, I'll get telling stories and she's like, uh-uh, nope, that's not how it went. Like, that is not, that's not true. So let's get Let's get to the meat. So Katrina and Otis, welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Should we dive into the marriage piece first, just to set the context for everybody? (laughs) I think think we should, because people think that like I'm sexually harassing Otis until we tell them that we're married and that it's, yes, there's funny (laughs) business. It's just legal. It's fine. (laughs) I'm allowed to do this. He's my, he's my husband. Yeah. Yes. Oh, that's so great. Well, um, okay. So tell me about Turnkey. I know you've been doing this over three decades. Katrina, you started it. Otis, you've come along here over the last decade or so. You're working with major, major nonprofits, mostly large ones, is my understanding, across yep. the country. Tell me about Turnkey, how it started, and kind of the the big big highlights of what you guys do on a day-to-day basis. I started the company in 1989, and I, you know, my goal simply was to be self-employed at a job I could do sitting down. I grew up in a family farm and and that was everyone's goal who who was in the family, you know, can we get a job sitting down? So the job or the company that I decided to start was at that time nobody really knew what to call it. It was actually advertising specialties or logo imprinted products and because no one knew what to call it, I thought oh that's a good idea. We'll do that because that's hard, you know, to 
to talk about. So probably a few people do it. I was completely wrong. It's a highly commoditized product. And it was a really difficult uh, business to run because it is so highly commoditized. It also wasn't very fun because it, you know, it's not deep, right? It's just not deep. Mm. But I was lucky in that one of my very first clients was this wizened little old lady at the American Cancer Society. And frankly, she brought me in one day and she said, I hate all my vendors and I'm going to build my own and you're it. And oh, wow. she, yeah, she was amazing. Mickey Privet. And so she insisted that I register as a team captain in my local Relay for Life event and that I do that before she'd give me any business. And I did that. I ended up uh, being a co-chair for the event. I served on the regional board and I got really deep into volunteerism and what it meant. And you did the thing that I wish I had been smart enough to do, which is design and found a platform to facilitate and make for a better volunteer experience that that can be quantified with data that the mm. that the platform is generating. You know, I guess everybody knows you founded Boma, right? I, hopefully, hopefully everyone. <laughs> if they know. Well, they they know, know now. That. No, they should, they know. should yeah. know. that. Yeah, we talk about that quite a bit. Good. But I think that's really important. And I, my belief is that volunteerism is at the heart of of social good. I mean, mm. that's where it starts. And the, and that our job as professionals in social good is to knock down barriers for volunteers to do good, either through their actions as volunteers on boards, giving us their money to put it to work for them in the way they wish. And often we get distracted from that, that they're in charge. We mm. facilitate knock down barriers, but they're in charge. So anyway, that sort of forms the basis of what I believe about social good and about doing the work we do. And mm. then I got divvorced and I went on match.com. Okay. This guy. This and, is the juicy uh, part. Yeah. Yeah. Is it, it, we literally, <laughs> and he had a dreamy profile pic? He did, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but more important, he was a good writer. And mm. so, like, you know, when we started talking with each other, we didn't actually get on the phone. We what was the platform we were on? It was we went from match platform to Skype. So okay. we IM'd no. on Skype. That that ages you right there. We IM'd on Skype for like a week, and it was volumes of stuff. And when we finally met, literally sat down and fell in love over volunteerism and social good. Wow. Yeah. It was ridiculous. Like even the waiter didn't want to wait on us because we were so boring. Like, oh my God, these people. <laughs> no. <laughs> and we're still just as boring today. We are. Oh. Yes. yes. People come to dinner, they go to the bathroom, they never come back. It's incredible. <laughs> and and Otis, so okay, so you meet on match.com, you come in, you're like Katrina's this power woman working with nonprofits and and, and running all that. And you you had an education background and were really into the psychology of things. And tell me a little bit more about your background and, and, and coming into Turnkey and just how that happened. Well, I'm a social psychologist. Right. And yeah, as Katrina said, we had lunch. We'd uh, we corresponded for about a week. And I didn't tell her for a long time, but uh, I deleted my Match.com uh, uh, profile that night after I'd met her because wow. I knew that I didn't have to look anymore. I asked her what she did for a living. And she described what she did with volunteers and so forth. And I said, well, you know why that works so well, don't you? And she said, I have no idea. And then I turned into uh, Ron Burgundy, an anchor man. And I said, <laughs> well, I have many, I have many leather bound books on that topic. And uh, so, uh, but yes, I, I was in the education industry. I worked for Pearson Education and uh, some other multinational education companies. I focused on consumer behavior. So my background and 
what she was doing just was a, a remarkable fit. It just was really the same topic. So that's how we went forward. That's so fun. Well, well, thanks for getting personal with us. Cause that's, I think that just, I love the context and I love, I love when married couples work together as well. Cause it's, you know, I started Vomo and this, it's kind of like having a work husband, but with my brother. And then my dad was our CFO, first investor board member. And it was all in the family. And there was so many dynamics that came to play every day at work that would not come to play when you are working with people who you're not related to. And, you know, there's a lot of good and a lot of bad that can happen with that. But if it's done right, it, I just think it propels your work and catalyzes it in so many ways. And I can see that with the two of you with just your complimentary, uh, you know, characteristics and experiences that you bring to the table. So at, I just want to get a little bit more on turnkey. So Katrina at current turnkey, which, you know, you're coming in and it, you're solving problems and helping to fix pain points to help drive nonprofits forward. Is it, right. is it typically always in the fundraising space or, or what, what is the, the remit of what kind of work you yeah. do with them? Well, you know, it's interesting. The longer I'm in this, the more I realize that you just have to climb up. You have to climb upwards in order to fix problems at the bottom. So years ago, we would be brought in to work purely on revenue products. And, you know, what's wrong with this revenue product? Why aren't we raising more money? Why aren't we acquiring new donors? And the more you study what's wrong, the answer is almost always, it's the strategic plan. It's organizational alignment. It is our internal culture that's wrong. And so often we were fighting battles at a level that was really irrelevant and was never going to fix anything. Hmm. And so that drove us to go further and further upstream uh, in terms of who could impact what. And so now we rarely talk to anybody but the CEO and the CDO. And then we typically are engaging the entire C-suite. So for example, if your social fundraising endeavor is just not thriving the problem is probably not you. It's the environment in which that product is existing inside your organization and the way it's positioned to the public. And we can't fix it with the peer-to-peer fundraising director. Cannot do it. We can only take your money and spend it, but we can't fix your problem. If we go upstream, and typically at some point, you're going to have to get engaged with a strategic plan, either the one that's existing to build out an operational plan that actually will help fix a problem that everyone agrees on and there's organizational alignment around. So that's what we're doing now. And that is the only, I think the only way to actually fix anything doing a peer to peer revamp in a silo doesn't work. Very true to my experience. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely true. Okay. Well, that's really helpful background and context. And so I want to get into the book. I know this just, it's your second book together. It just came out uh, January 9th of this year. Um, social fundraising, mining the new peer-to-peer landscape. I know in our pre-call, you said that this really encapsulates your your three decades of work and bringing this more into like a, a manual or a how-to around peer-to-peer fundraising and, or social fundraising. And I mentioned earlier, for me, this is really fascinating because I would build tools mm-hmm. to help do the transaction from the volunteer, you know, they're giving their time, they're giving their experience and their presence, but then how do we convert these people into donors as well? And I know that's a hot topic today, but I don't think it's done well on a mainstream level. And I think there's a lot of the the why behind it that had probably has not been defined for many of our organizations and many of our listeners. And so I'd like to start with that. Like, can you can you define for me peer-to-peer? and or social fundraising and you know i know it's a buzzword and we've heard about it but i don't i i would bet money that many of us don't know actually what this is can you tell me more about it 
So Otis, why don't you define it from a psychological perspective first, and then I'll lay the technical around it. Sure. Well, you know, social fundraising, but uh, used to be called just peer-to-peer, is really anytime anyone approaches someone that they know socially and asks them for money, for a volunteer opportunity, uh, for anything. That's what makes peer-to-peer so successful, is it's the relationships between the asker and the person who's uh, receiving the ask. Katrina? So the in the old days, when peer-to-peer meant walking around a track and gearing up for one weekend where we count the money, but we already collected it, the human dynamic at play, uh, all the biases and heuristics that are at work that make people say yes and make you want to do it in the first place, I think what we are trying to do with social fundraising is expand the idea of social fundraising, meaning all those human heuristics and biases are at work all the time, no matter where we're applying peer leverage, and we should include them all. I would even, we didn't include it in the book, but I could even say like a a gala committee, a volunteer gala committee, is that a peer-to-peer endeavor? Is that a social fundraising endeavor? Absolutely. If they're applying peer leverage to get good services, donations, table sales, yes. And do all the same biases apply? Yes. And mm. how do we teach people, how do we teach people those things the way humans work so they can apply it in any situation? Mm. That's our goal. Yeah, and, yeah, and, and you know, Katrina, the, the biases that she's talking about, when you go to a friend and say, hey, would you uh, make a donation to the March of Dimes, for example? The person makes a donation. Yeah, the check's made to the March of Dimes, but they're really supporting you as, as a friend. They're, they're really responding to you. So it's kind of one step away from the organization. And then what the organization does is they try to they try to nurture that relationship so that you do become a supporter of the March of Dimes rather than just your friend who asked for the donation. Hmm. And so let me let me go down a rabbit hole. So yes, in please. the past, that donor to a social fundraiser, they were too expensive to nurture. Like we couldn't do it. You know, direct mail is expensive. We couldn't apply hmm. human labor. It's too expensive. But now the technology has advanced to the point that it's not too expensive to try and nurture them to the point that they earn, so to speak, a human outreach or a more expensive outreach. And I think that's the opportunity that has not yet been exploited, having uh, marketing and development in separate departments where development may not have access to marketing automation tools for this purpose of nurturing peer-to-peer acquired donors is a huge mistake. And and many sophisticated organizations are fixing that. Mm. But suddenly, a peer-to-peer acquired donor is not worth zero in the future anymore. We can make them more because the technology has made it inexpensive enough to go after them and to create that relationship and build the thing. All the biases that, well, not all, there are biases at work in the donor that can be exploited. Otis, can you talk about that? What those, once I've made a donation to mission that I may not be averse to, but I don't really care about through my friend who's doing a social fundraiser, what's at work on me now as a donor? Hmm. In a social yeah, fundraising well, setting. Sure. You know, we you know we talk about peer-to-peer social fundraising as being the front door of an organization. And that's because people are often acquired by organizations through the, these kinds of outreach. You know, people want to be consistent in their behaviors over time. Well, the consistency bias, uh, pretty simple. So once you've stroked a check to the to, to March of Dimes and so forth, you're much more likely to do it again because you've done it in the past. And one thing that uh, organizations are don't like to do is once people have made a donation, you know, they think, oh, well, let's not go back and ask for another 
donation. Well, that's the best time to do it. Absolutely. Right. You know, you know, because that behavior is very fresh in their mind. And, you know, people want to want to be consistent in two ways. They want to be consistent between their behaviors over time and they want their attitudes and their behaviors to be consistent. So because they've made that behavior, they've made a donation, say, now's the best time that you can kind of mold their attitude Hmm. so that they're more that they're more positive to the organization that they just donated to. So yes. Rob, you asked a question I don't think we answered, which was, uh, I think, if I recall, you asked, like, how do we get them from volunteering to donating, right? Yeah, I'm fascinated by that topic. Yes. Okay. Uh, I'll say it in layperson terms, and then notice you can expand on it. There's no difference. Like, it's just the same thing on a spectrum. And I would say if they're volunteering, you probably have already passed the part of the spectrum where they would be donating because Mm. my time and my public persona is way more valuable than my money. Otis, would you agree? Oh yeah. You know, time investment uh, really, well, we find that most people who volunteer do donate as well. And, And if they don't, they're very responsive to an ask to donate. So again, it's that idea about behaviors and attitudes being consistent. So, you know, of course I'm going to donate because I'm the kind of person that uh, sees myself as a champion against cancer or whatever the mission is of the organization. So Rob, you're having the dinner experience now. This is the time when you would get up and go to the bathroom. And <laughs> I'm the waiter. I'm like, uh, I'm sure just going to back off this table. Yeah. No, I love this it. Yeah, my my sister in law had a had, had a terrifying experience with this kind of a conversation uh, <laughs> when we were on a family vacation one time, and I think uh, uh, yeah, and she yeah. never yeah. wanted to listen to us again. She never wanted to be alone with us again. <laughs> she hasn't accepted the invite for the next vacation. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. No, I love it. This is great. It's like ping pong back and forth because we're going deep into something that you're so passionate about and something that you have a wealth of knowledge about. So I'm like, well, I'll just shut up and let you go. This is great. <laughs> Okay, so one of the things that goes into this that I know, Otis, we talked about briefly earlier on our pre-call was something you call the trifecta of satisfaction. Can you tell me more about that and unpack that for our listeners? Sure. You know, there's a branch of psychology called positive psychology, and broad, it's been around for about 25 years. Broadly defined, it's uh, the study of what makes life worth living. And so positive psychologists went and they interviewed people who were satisfied in various aspects of their lives. And they, they found that there were three things that people have had in common. The first is they had they had a sense of autonomy, that they were they were in control of the situation or that aspect of their lives. Um, they were as psychologists say they had agency. The second thing was what psychologists call competence. They felt like they were doing important work and they had the opportunity to do it well and to get better sometimes. And the third thing was what they called relatedness. They felt a connection to something bigger than themselves. You know, it could be the mission. It could be the community of people that they were involved with in terms of the organization. But, you know, they felt a sense of connection. And, you know, this is very consistent with a lot of research. You know, we find that people who were connected with more than one nonprofit mission actually have a greater life expectancy. Hmm. So nonprofit work can often become, you know, a huge part of a person's life and huge part of what they find fulfilling. So then taking that trifecta then, Katrina, do we we then try to journey map the experience mm-hmm. for the volunteers and yes. the donors so that we're hitting those those points along that journey that we're creating for them in our organization? Is that is that what we would do? 
We don't do it and we should do it. We often don't do it because we often hear people talking about the journey map, but what they're really talking about is understanding often how the tech is interacting with the donor journey or the fundraiser journey. Yes. And they're not really thinking about the business requirements of the human. And that's what Otis just described. We know the business requirements, you know, for different stakeholders, but the one that we don't really define very well is the human in the way that they actually operate. We presume to know what they want. And even when they tell us what they're, they want, they're usually wrong. And Otis, if you could touch on that before I go further, you know, when people tell us what they want, they're usually wrong. Explain that. <laughs> I like this. Well, you know, most motivation is, is unconscious mm. and, um, you know, people really don't know what satisfies them exactly. And so, uh, you know, what Katrina is describing is, uh, you know, setting up the conditions so that these three needs are fulfilled, the need for autonomy, the need for competence, the need for con- connection. So, you know, when you go and you ask people, why do you like working with the organization? They really, they rarely put their finger on it, uh, on these things. But, you know, these are the conditions that you want to create for people who are volunteering and working for you, because if they feel these, these three things, they're going to stay around because people want to be in relationships that they find are fulfilling. So when we work with the professionals in the field, often we hear them regurgitating stuff they learned when they first started into the practice. You know, we need to create emotion. We need to, you know, they say all the words, but really we got to peel it back to what we know from science actually works. And the easy way to do that is with data and correction, because they tell us in their actions exactly what is true, but they can't tell us with their words. And it's not that they're lying. It's that they can't. I can't tell you really what motivates me, but we can see through the data what does and what doesn't. So we try and get close to the horseshoe steak with social psychology, and then we use the data to refine from there. That's an ideal situation. But I will be frank in that most people really want to hold on to their expertise and keep it relevant for as long as possible. So, you know, I will use an example. Otis is getting new knees and we can't get his new knees in Richmond, Virginia. Because nobody in Richmond wants to try the new technique, which is, you know, minimally invasive, low Mm. trauma, because they want to hold on to their expertise. We see that same dynamic in social good and in peer-to-peer because I know how this works and I'm going to do it my way by God. It's hard to introduce new innovation when your expertise is on the line, right? When something new that you are no longer the expert of, it uh, it takes a lot of vulnerability and humility to step forward and lead out of that posture. Absolutely. Katrina can expound for for a long time on on the giving gifts that we see. You know, Katrina had a, 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 started a tchotchke company and it was all about giving gifts to people that, that raised funds. Well, we know that that actually demotivates people much of the time. The practice is still pervasive and people are sure that giving gifts motivates people when yeah. it really doesn't. But, you know, in their defense, the, the data is really tricky on that. Um, the way that the beginning of me closing down my warehouse was a two-year study of a study I had done many times. And the, the study was in, in a single year when you apply fungible gifts, meaning gifts that could, I could look at that and say, yeah, that's a $15 mug, or hey, that's a $30 jacket, or hey, that Nike brand makes it an $80 jacket, or that's a grill, it's 200 bucks. When you use things like that inside a recognition program, and you study the data over a one-year period, it looks like it really works. Like there's a bomb. But when you expand that study to a two-year period, you realize that 
you just fell off a cliff. Like you just convinced your best fundraiser that, wow, I did a lot of work for a $200 grill. That's the conversation that's going on unconsciously inside their brain. And you can't see it in a single year. So that was the first thing that I saw that that was like, oh, no, this was before I met Otis. And so I'm digging around as a layperson in the psychology trying to figure out what what is going on. Sure. I slipped and did the cursing thing there. But I call myself <laughs> so proud, so proud. And, you know, and I found a little stuff that gave me an idea. Okay. It's about being able to monetize the product. And at that moment, I went on match.com and met Otis and it got a lot easier. (laughs) (laughs) This episode is brought to you by Virtuous. Are you stuck using outdated, slow, and redundant technology to power your nonprofit? It's time to make the switch. Virtuous gives your organization the fundraising, volunteer, and marketing tools you need to create a more responsive donor experience and grow giving. Want to learn more? Get a personalized demo today at virtuous.org slash demo. That's virtuous.org slash demo. Wait, so this is this is a big aha for me. I've never... Mm-hmm. It's one of those defaults that, you know, is mainstream. So everybody's like, oh, of course, you get the mug when you give the gift. And, you know, yeah. it's a it's a free mug, but it's really the cost of your donation. You know, are you saying that it ultimately devalues that donor or is it just a net neutral thing where it doesn't really make a difference? Right. So yeah, I'm going to let Otis explain it because he does a really good job with this. Here's kind of the, the crux of it. Behavior contingent gifts all the research says are demotivating. And let me explain what that is. So let's say you have a person who's, as we say, intrinsically motivated to do a certain behavior. So they think that raising money for the American Cancer Society is the right thing to do. They're intrinsically motivated. Then you say, well, if you raise $1,000, we're going to give you this jacket. Okay. That's what I mean by a behavior contingent gift. If you raise $1,000, give you a jacket. All the research says that if you give an intrinsically motivated person, a behavior contingent gift, it's demotivating. Hmm. Uh, it's not motivating. What I like to uh, uh, talk about is giving people, unex- if you're going to give gifts, give give them unexpected gifts. A gift that's expected is, you know, where's my gift? I raised $1,000. Something shows up in the mail and, you know, it's like, oh, they must appreciate. What kind of people receive unexpected gifts? People who are appreciated. So it's a very different dynamic with that kind of a thing. Yeah. and I. It's interesting. You'll hit people in the industry who know these things intuitively, but they don't have the words for it. And because they don't have the words for it, they can't really teach it to the next generation. So part of our effort in social fundraising, in many cases, is to define what professionals feel in their gut and Mm -hmm. know is true and and put it forth in a way that it can be taught and transferred in terms Mm -hmm. of knowledge. That's really helpful and fascinating. I want to Take a little rabbit trail here for a second and talk about social media and social fundraising. I know that's you've got an entire chapter on that in this new book. Can you give me some of your findings there? Because I know that that's a hot topic and something that people are dabbling with on whether it's Facebook or a birthday or inviting their friend, whatever it might be. Does that work? Is this is this helpful for the organization? Is this you know? If I could imagine, if not maximized, it might be a giant waste of time for people on our staffs. I don't know. I'll outline it and then toss it to Otis because he did his PhD work on social media, volunteer fundraising. Fantastic. Um, You know, it's like saying, 
uh, I'm not going to participate in air. Yeah, we're going to be on social media. <laughs> of course we are. You know, that's not, that's no, not thank a question. You. Yeah. yeah, no <laughs> thanks. You. What do you mean? I mean, it is simply the new way that we communicate. And so that that's not really a question. We don't have to, from our point of view, sell our clients on the use of social media. That's not our job because like air is air. Mm. It's there. What we will say is that one of the things that Otis has done a good job of quantifying is that human behavior is more contingent on the situation than it is the person. And I'll let him explain that further. But the situation of social media is really different. It's really different. Every situation we we drop people into, I really consider like our lab. We're creating the situation. We're creating what they're experiencing in the, the design of our event and the design of our communications. And then they react. And then we tweak. And then they react. And social media is the same thing. So with that, knowing that social media is a very different environment situation Mm -hmm. that we put our people into, or we've joined them there, really. Otis, talk about your findings and your uh, dissertation. Uh, Yeah, you know, I studied uh, Facebook fundraising. And to make a long story short, uh, a year and a half of research, what I found was that traditional recognition really didn't mean anything to people who are doing Facebook fundraisers. And, you know, what, what I surmise by that is that, you know, the very fact of, of just doing a fundraiser is so visible to other people. It says, it says to your friends and peers that are getting this request for donation, Hey, look, Bob's the kind of guy that's, that supports social good. Um, people, people have a, a need for what psychologists call image motivation. So, mm-hmm. so just getting it out there and having, you know, 150 of your friends see that you're raising money says, I'm the kind of person who does good stuff, who supports my community and so forth. And so that in and of itself is recognition enough. These people didn't need any additional recognition from the organization for fundraising because they were so visible. And to me, what that meant is, at least in the social media environment, we don't have to spend the 3 to 5% of revenue that we typically do on recognition programs. And that's a big deal. That's absolutely a huge deal. So, uh, yeah, Otis is like, they didn't respond. I'm like, yes, this is great. He's like, no, it's not great, honey. <laughs> I um, no, that's this is uh, I'm learning a lot. This is really good. As you get towards the end of the book, I'm looking here at the table of contents, and I saw that you've got a it looks like a case study on MD Anderson, and mm-hmm. you call it volunteerism gone wild. And that I highlighted that because I was like, I got to hear more about this story. So I don't know if it's too much to ask you to just give some of the highlights of that, but because I, I always love case studies, right? Where we get, you know, we're going from here and the heart, and we're going out to practicalities. And how does how's this really working right. on the ground level? Right. So we were brought in by a, an industry compatriot, Robin Mendez, who said, "I want to design what was called Bootwalk eventually for MD Anderson Cancer Center. It was their first social fundraising endeavor. It was an on the ground event in Houston." And she said, I really want to lean into the the tactics that you describe. I want to understand, you know, how to build this so that it will fly. And so where we started was with the Volunteer Leadership Committee. And we applied math to it. Like, how many Volunteer Leadership Committee members do we need in order to hit $500,000? And the way you apply math to that is, you know, what's the average team raise? How many team members? Uh, You know, how many Volunteer Leadership Committee members equal a team. And you know there is math to that. You can look at the industry statistics and understand what those numbers are. And then the last number we applied was Dunbar's number, which is Otis explain that real quick. 
Well, Robin Dunbar is an anthropologist. I believe he's at Cambridge or uh, somewhere in the UK. But uh, he determined that the average person, and, and this is a this is an average, the average person has about 150 people in their social network. Think of it as the kind of relationships people you can invite to a large party. Okay. Uh, that that sort sort of thing. So you know, if you know that every person in your on your committee has about 150 contacts. Uh, it makes it possible then to do some calculations that Katrina is talking about. Mm-hmm. So this math is in our first book, Dollar Dash. And mm-hmm. um, at the end of the day, we found out we needed, in order to raise $500,000 for MD Anderson in a volunteer-driven event, we needed 128 committee members. Okay. And the problem became, what are we going to ask them to do? So it's really approaching it from a very different thing. It wasn't like we need to run this event and we need this many volunteers to do it. It was the, we need this many volunteers and we need to give them a job because a job is the best form of recognition that you can Mm. give someone. And Mm. so Robin and I and other team members sat around and we uh, came up with what I think is the best job we have ever designed. So MD Anderson Cancer Center is connected by 2.8 miles of air conditioned corridor. We knew that most of our team captains were going to come from the departments. Most of our registrants would come from the departments. Hmm. And so we uh, created a role role called Recognition Runner, and we recruited fit young college students to wear pink cowboy hats, pink tutus, and running shoes. And whenever anybody hit $100 in fundraising, they would run their event t-shirt to their desk through the halls as quickly as they could. And and make big noise when they got to their desk. So we knew, you know, employees weren't the majority of the audience, or they were the majority, not the, you know, they were not homogenous, but um, just doing that worked really well. Robin also had a huge coup in that she went to, what is that? I'll, I'll, I'll probably get uh, hate mail because I don't know, is it the rodeo in Houston? It's a big, big whoop in Houston right. that is volunteer driven. And they recruited the, chair of the rodeo who brought along the horse fatality committee which are the people who horse fatality okay <laughs> who uh flipped down out of the horse stalls so suddenly she had all these volunteers she had all these great jobs and it worked great so about two weeks before the event and it's you know it's just a walk at the end of the day mm-hmm. in houston two weeks before the event she called me up and she's and there's no registration fee and there's a re- good reason for that And she said, Katrina, uh, what do we do if we have more registrants than the city fire code will allow for a two-block radius? And I'm like, wow, never got that question. (laughs) Good problem to have, right? (laughs) Wow, that was a really good problem. Anyway, they ended up raising over a million dollars the first year. And there were many dynamics at work, but the volunteer committee was the, that was the heart of it. And understanding how many we needed and that we had to put them to work in meaningful roles. Hmm. And that would translate down the pipeline to the number of teams we needed, the number of committees we needed, the number of teams we needed, and ultimately the number of participants that we needed, which meant we got the number of donations that we needed. So it was all math and it was all planned. And it was averse to typical thinking. Thanks for sharing the story. That's that's so cool. That's wow. And well, and I love that what you've surfaced of the idea of recognition and the appropriate recognition for our volunteers and for our donors, and not just giving tchotchkes out like you mentioned earlier that are yeah. too expensive and don't see any ROI on it or long term impact. Yeah, that's super helpful to to ground it at that level. 
Okay, I've got a couple of questions before we before we part here. Um, one is, you know, we're talking about large scale nonprofits primarily here, you know, with much of your experience. And I know at Virtuous, you know, we're working with a lot of midsize and smaller nonprofits who maybe are doing a couple million in revenue or more. And they're using utilizing technology platforms. They're doing, you know, uh, personalized marketing approaches and whatnot. And and they do, you know, we've surfaced here in the conversation. They have peer-to-peer happening in their organization. And social fundraising is happening, whether they're defining it that way or not. How does an organization like that begin to start taking the next steps and getting strategic about peer-to-peer? Obviously, they can they can get your book, they can go to your site, they can they can start implementing that. But are there any kind of first couple recommendations that you would make for these type of organizations? I would get rid of two ideas in my own head if I were them. The first is we're different because we're smaller. You're not different as long as the humans are the same, they're the same. And my cause doesn't resonate. And um, I'll get Otis to address that as well, if you want to, Otis. But I think those are two of the most self-defeating ideas. And they're really excuses to hide behind because humans are humans. Mm. Like situationally, I can create a very similar situation for an organization that's a million in revenue as Hart can for their, you know, 200 million in revenue. The lab that we create, the lab, the maze that we put our participants in, we control and we can control. And they're not really responding to the mission at all. They're responding to the cues that we're setting up to give them intentionally or not. I mean, it's it's science. It's not art. It Just follow the, follow the playbook and mm-hmm. it, you can get there. Otis, do you want to talk about that participation in social fundraising is mission independent on part of the fundraiser and the donor? Typically. Sure. Yeah. It's not rocket science, but it is social science. Uh, some powerful stuff. And it's um, really about what is the volunteers' goals. It, it's not about what what are the nonprofits' goals. It's it's you know what do I want to get out of this? Do I want to get a sense of community? Do I want to get a sense of agency that I'm doing something important? I'm, I'm having an impact on the world. So it, it's really what the volunteer wants that's important. You know, Randy Corey has has a great quote in the book. What is it, Katrina? That it's not the it's not, oh. it's not the organ. Yeah. What, what's her comment? I can't remember. Yeah. Something about it's, it's, this uh, when you make it up. It, well, <laughs> it, it, yeah. She, she says something to the effect of it's not the organization's needs. It's, it's the volunteers needs that you really mm-hmm. want to pay attention to. And, you know, social science says that that's, that's right on target. She says, and I quote, this okay. goes back to one of the first rules of fundraising. Donors give to your organization because you meet needs, not because you have needs. Hmm. We get that. Yeah. I think the longer we do this, I've led five different nonprofits before starting VOMO. And you get that at the beginning and you understand that. And that's the motivation and the why. And then you go build an organization and a system and you start losing track of that. And it, a lot of what you're talking about in the behavior is you end up doing a lot of things that maybe don't make the most sense and aren't really about the why at the very beginning that we started with. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you know, j- yeah. Just, just to wrap that, you know, uh, what, what Katrina was referring to earlier is it really doesn't matter what the mission is. Uh, it matters what the, it matters what the person who's, who's involved is getting out of the relationship with the organization. Mm. Uh, that's, that's really the bottom line. And that's what keeps them coming back. Fascinating. All right. Final question. And this is one I'm putting you both on the spot, but you can handle it. We do this every week. And the question I love to get in the vast array of 
answers is really, truly, I think, beautiful. The question is, is what does generosity mean to you? And so it's a total personal level. I would love to get both of your comments on that before we go. But what does generosity mean to you personally? For me, it means assuming good intent on other people's part consistently and living, knowing, okay, this is weird. I know I'm going to die and I'm never going to keep all my stuff. And I don't need to, I can skid in sideways to zero and give a lot of it away. That's, Mm. you know, because there are people who will be left. Yeah. Otis? I think, you know, to me, generosity means that being concerned about others is the most fulfilling thing that you're going to do for yourself. So, you know, it, it's really something that is incredibly rewarding uh, mm. to get outside of yourself. Yeah, thank you both. That's like an emotional answer. I love that. It's very, very real into the heart. Well, this has been so much fun. You? What is it for you? It's similar to yours. Um, I've told people a lot. I had to do this at a conference a couple weeks ago, and they spurred it on me. Same, <laughs> They did the same thing to me that I'm doing to you. <laughs> and, and I said, essentially... I'm not guaranteed another breath of life and I'm here for a finite amount of time, like kind of like you're saying. And so to me, it is, it is living for the benefit of others, right? So it's self-sacrifice on my part to benefit other, another person. And to me, and that can look like a million different things, but when I'm living out of that, like to your point, Otis, you're truly finding joy in that in your own life, but also serving others. And it's this beautiful circle of, of, of virtue that's happening there. So that's what it is for me. I love it. All right. So where do we find the book? How do we get a hold of you guys? Websites and uh, places to go. Cause I know our listeners are going to want to want to dig in and, and follow up here. We are at turnkeyforgood.com and each of our email addresses is our first name at turnkeyforgood.com. We love getting questions, hard ones, sticky ones. And we're told you should be under contract before you respond, but we can't. We just do. So email us. We'd love to hear about that weird question that you have. And uh, what else? The book is at uh, Amazon. It's on Amazon. Ready to go? It is at Amazon Social Fundraising, Mining the New Peer-to-Peer Landscape at Amazon.com. Awesome. Well, thank you, guys. We enjoyed the time. And uh, I just appreciate you and all your work. Thank you. Right back at you. you, Thank you. And that's a wrap, folks. Thanks for tuning in this week to the Responsive Nonprofit Podcast. We are so grateful for your time. We know how busy you are and consider it a privilege to journey alongside you as you work to make change in our world. We believe in you and would love to hear from you. Projects like this are only as good as the feedback we get, the guests who come on, and all the topics we get to discuss. So if you have an idea, if you know of an impactful guest that must come on the show, or if you want to be a part of the responsive community, check us out over at virtuous.org backslash podcast and join the conversation. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite station. Your mission needs your collective talent and passion. So go forth and lead the charge forward and we'll be here cheering you on. We'll see you next week.